He really liked it here. Uh, Lumpa Tongdeng is actually from the Dhammayut, Dhammayut Nikaya. There's two main sects or Nikayas of Theravada Buddhism in Thailand. Uh, the vast majority, close to 90% of the monks, are actually in the Maha Nikaya, which is why it's called you know, the Great Nikaya. But uh, Ajahn Man and many of the disciples of Ajahn Man there in the uh, Dhammayut Nikaya. And that is in uh, Lumpur Tongdang's background. So it's also nice that we have someone from Dhammayut tradition coming. Yeah, that is correct. Now that is the one you ordained with. I sent out a little biography. We don't really have that much. He's not yet very known and there's very limited information in English. But he's born in 1954, which is the year of the horse, like Ajahn Chah and like Damasya. So I trust we'll be getting on very well. And he ordained already as a novice. And that was with Lumpur Van Utamo. But already as a novice, he also trained with Lumpur Van. And there's already a connection because Ajahn Hasapanyu, you may remember, Canadian monk who stayed here. And he lived for quite a number of years in Lumpur Van's monastery. But Doi Mei Pang is also uh, up north in Thailand, a little bit further away from Chiang Mai. So, and uh, I have stayed there as well. Actually, they had reserved the royal kuti for me, because in the 1980s, the late King Bama IX of Thailand, uh, he used to visit Lumpur Van quite a bit. And then they built this special royal kuti for him. It still has gotten a very beautiful uh, wallpaper and very high, much higher than normal kuti. And they put me in there when I stayed for about a week. And then uh, Lumpa Pasit was one of his teachers, another outstanding teacher in the Dhammayut and Ajahn Man tradition. I think Lumpa Pasit is the one who became quite famous uh, when he was old and he needed an operation and they operated on him and I think it was a thigh bone and had already crystallized while he was alive. You may have heard of the relics, the little relics which you can have, in particular of uh, enlightened, uh, realized meditation masters, uh, realized Nibbana. And after the cremation, you know, their body is often producing these uh, relics which basically look like precious stones. They don't look like bones or anything. They, they look like precious stones or like crystals. And in this case, uh, amazingly, the doctor found that he had already a very unusual kind of crystallized structure in his bone when he was alive. I managed to pay respects to Lumpur Prasit with Ajahn Hasapanyu when I visited him in 2015, I think, or 16. But he was already very elderly and couldn't really teach, he just bowed. 
However, another very important teacher for Lungpo Tongdeng was Lungpo Plien. And uh, Lungpo Plien I know quite well because he visited the monastery in Perth when I was staying there. And he was one of the Ajans who really inspired my faith, my conviction in the Thai forest tradition. He's uh, well known for being very psychic and a very energetic. I remember Lumpur Plian when uh, the teachings would go on in the evening. Usually he would already teach for evening drink. And then uh, six o'clock evening drink, then seven o'clock we would move to the Dhamma Hall and he would do formal teachings starting at seven and by usually between ten and eleven at night time. Uh, Ajahn Nyanadamo would fade out as a translator. He would be too tired. He couldn't translate anymore because he was going all day. After you know, f uh, four or five hours translating, he was too tired. And then uh, after a while, Lupa Plien would notice that. And then he would end the session and he would go back to his kuti. By now we are getting close to midnight. And whoever of the monks would be most energetic, they would accompany him and give him maybe a foot massage. And while we are doing that, he would continue teaching. And when these uh, most energetic monks, and by 1 or one thirty in the morning, and they are too tired, they, they would end the session and they would go back to their kuti to sleep. And then Lumpur Plian would go on his walking path and practice some walking meditation because he has been sitting so much. And the next day, the same program, and the same thing in the evening and uh, noon he would teach the lay people and it can also go for hours. Well, unbelievable energy. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. He was very, very known for his samadhi. Even Longpo Tongdeng, I think he started at only 11, 11 years as a novice. And the teacher asked him, I can't remember, they, he had to sit six or eight hours a day for forming meditation. He found it a little bit difficult in the beginning, but later he pulled through and then uh, he really enjoyed meditating as a young novice. And his teacher that was probably the Lumpur One Utamo. He probably recognized that he has exceptional power in me. Because normally if you try to make an 11-year-old sit eight hours a day, you, know, you may put them off of meditation forever. They just can't do it. But in his case, not some fairly quick, you know, his mind settled down and then he was very determined to stay in robes because he enjoyed it so much, the meditation. Lumpur Plien is also so the teacher of Lumpur Tongdeng. Is also the first senior monk who visited us after we started Amagibi, after we bought the property. It was a coincidence that when the contract was settled, that is for the top property, because in the beginning we didn't have this one here, the house and this 10 acres we didn't have. We only had the top. And uh, within, I think, five days of the settlement, and we owned it now, 
he happened to visit the uh, Dhammayod temple at the Gold Coast together with Tantrakun Mahasamai. Because I knew Tantrakun Mahasamai and he speaks good English, and I thought we tried to do a little abduction, a kidnapping. And uh, fortunately, Tantrakun Mahasamai cooperated with that. And I knew about the flight which we would arrive, and then we went to the Gold Coast. And on the way to the Gold Coast, I already tried not to keep my mind very wholesome, because I had to convince the Lumpur to come with us, rather than going straight to the Thai temple. It would be a delay of, of at least three hours. So I was doing the Buddha, Buddha. Actually, I'm usually doing Bhagavan, Adahang, Buddha, Buddha, Adahang, Bhagavan. Bhagavan Adahang Buddha Buddha Adahang Bhagavan Bhagavan Adahang Buddha Buddha Adahang Bhagavan And I did that ne, quite consistently. And you wouldn't believe it, ne, uh, at the Gold Coast Airport, right at the gate where he would come out, the domestic, I could go to the gate, they had actually a big picture, a framed picture of, of a head of the Buddha. So I thought, no, this is an amazing coincidence. So I placed myself no, right next to that. Anjali continuing, Bhagava Adahang Buddha, Buddha Adahang Bhagava. And then uh, Lumpur and Tanjakun Mahasamai and I think another monk, they came out. And the ties were too late. They were too late. They were not even there. So um, with Tanjakun Mahasamai translating and already preparing Lumpur, we could convince him. He just started a new forest monastery and I'm not sure whether he could remember me, but I told him about the visits here in Perth and that we have met. And then very kindly he agreed to going here. I was actually a little bit on the edge with the precepts about 100% honesty because when he asked me how far away is that, I said no, it took me uh, an hour to come, which wasn't a line, but I didn't come actually from here. I was in a different place. Because if I had said no, one and a half hours, he might have declined or something. So it was, wasn't a lie, but it wasn't 100% super truthful. And I could notice that during the drive out here, he started no, feeling a little bit, no, why does it take so long? And these people have to wait for me now in the Thai temple. And uh, he appeared in a little bit not so amused by that. But once we were on top of the property and, and he walked along the ridge there, and he really um, warmed up and became quite uh, enthusiastic. And on the highest point on the summit, there was nothing Yet there was only this big water tank and the concrete water was all we had. But on the summit we had prepared a tarp and a little Buddha statue. And then we invited him, we paid respects and he would sit down and uh, meditate for a short while. And after that he seemed to have a fairly good idea about Amagiri and uh, he gave some advice. He was concerned about dryness, about water. But uh, as we have in, uh, town water, it's not really a problem. But of course, that's correct that uh, there can be severe droughts here. 
but no, he wasn't aware that we no, later that we could no, connect to town water, which is very helpful. And uh, he mentioned that the place is actually uh, very suitable for developing deep meditation. I was very happy about that, that he said that. And another amazing thing, then we walked back, and without having this property, and we were already wondering, how do we build facilities on top? Ne? How do we get the cars up there? Because a car park ne, takes endless space, and on the which it would just destroy it all. If possible at all, now do you park 100 cars or something on the ridge? And where do we put in the dummer hall and so on? And when I asked him about that, he just pointed down the hill and he said, no, the, the lay people, the facilities, that should all be at the bottom of the hill. And I tried not to get across to him, not speaking Thai, and then Tanchakun Mahasamai translating for me. But was a bit difficult, and I tried to get across now that we can't build here because we don't own it. We only have this concrete road going up, and then the property on top. But uh, two years later, this one became available, and we managed to acquire it. And it, and it turned out exactly now how I had uh, advised, or can even say in a predicted. Yeah, uh, Dr. Garmany was also there, and uh, yeah, as mentioned, he was very uh, positive. And even just the change, and he was tired, he was at that stage already elderly. It was one, I think, of his very last international travels. So we were extremely lucky, even uh, Ajahn Chattamalo, who knows him very well, he couldn't get him to Germany because later he was sick and then he couldn't travel anymore. But his health was already frail, and he was really not so amused about this long car trip and the ties having to wait there. But once he was here, and he really liked it. And uh, he said meditation, yeah. So he made us some very nice compliments. And Dr. Garmany was one of our witnesses for that, yeah. And uh, he is a very important teacher of uh, Lumpur Tongdeng. To the extent that uh, Lumpur Tongdeng is currently in a building a stupa for Lumpur Plien. It's a bit unusual. Usually the stupa for such an outstanding master is done in his own monasteries. But Aranyavivik, Lumpur Plien has got a, or had a large monastery which is still there near Chiang Mai as well. But Lumpur Tongdeng is so close to him that the official main stupa for Lumpur Plien will actually be in his monastery. I had an opportunity to climb on the top of that stupa as it was in, in the building process when I was there in January. Fortunately, they don't have health and safety in Thailand, just in, in sabong and sandals clambering up on this bamboo scaffolding and the workers really liked it having the monks coming up there what I like about Lung Tongdeng that he has got a very strong uh, metal 
you can also see it now here's got after leaving here even here it's only three days and uh, actually less than three days and more like two and a half and then he is going to three other monasteries but now the reason is that he has this very strong meta and when people ask him something he usually tries to support and act for their welfare and he's very uh, beautiful in his uh, calmness and gentleness. However, that may betray the fact that he has practiced very diligently and with great dedication and a very difficult meditation. He's a, quite an expert on Dukkha Vedana meditation. That is a pain meditation, investigating pain. And a well-known way of doing that is simply to sit and not to change your posture. And after four, five, six hours, it's usually uh, unbearably painful, unless you're in samadhi, which wouldn't be so much the point of that meditation object. It's meant that you sit without moving until it is really, really painful. The whole body can feel like on fire. And that is a very good inside meditation object. When we saw him in January, uh, he talked about that quite a bit. Must admit, it's not exactly my favorite meditation object. But it's a very good one where often people can make very fast progress in Vipassana and insight. If you do anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing, it's easy to fall asleep. If you do pain meditation, you usually don't fall asleep. And if you do metta or other meditation objects, it's easy to get into some fantasies, planning. If you do pain meditation, you usually don't get into any distractive fantasies. And pain is so strong that you can't get away from it. And uh, if the person has the determination and even more important, the, the wisdom, the panyana to really investigate that, they often can make very good progress. But he also talked about the value of uh, repeating itipiso, to a mantra chanting with itipiso. Itipiso bhagava adahang samma sambuddho vicha chadana sampanno Sugato loka vidu anuttaro purisadhamma sarati sadha deva manusanang buddho bhagavati itipiso bhagavan anang. Like 108 times is a common one that people repeat it 108 times. And he said that this is the most powerful mantra at all because it's the describing the qualities of our Buddha but of all Buddhas. Uh, any equality mentioned in the Itipiso chant is uh, fully applicable to all Buddhas. It's not only specific to Buddha Gautama. And secondly, he said, now this is how the Buddha described it himself. That is the shortest and most well-known description the Buddha himself has given of his own qualities. There's a combination of that the Buddha, the supreme being in the universe. This is a short description of his essential qualities, what makes him so unique. And in his own words, 
And then additionally it applies you know, to all Buddhas. So if we repeat that, if we chant that, you know, it's very, very powerful. Have you ever done 108 times, Kittipiso? Good one. I was, can also do a thousand eight times if you like. It's possible you know, to keep going. You can do it all night. It's no harm. Yeah, yeah, no, it is so. No, this indeed, Bhagavan Arahang Samasambuto, the Bhagavan is usually translated the blessed one, the fortunate one, the exalted one, is still used in India. You may have heard of Bhagwan Sri Vajnish, they would use the same the epithet still for gurus nowadays in India. It's difficult to translate, the fortunate one, blessed one, exalted one. Arahang is a worthy one. Sama Sambuddhavo is the perfectly awakened one. The Buddha, the Buddha literally means the awakened when you wake up in the morning. Bujjhati. But of course, not just waking up from sleeping, but in a profound sense, waking up from the sleep of delusion. Yeah. Exactly. No, someone mentioning that there is a monk in Sri Lanka, and sometimes elephants come to possibly attack him or to circumambulate. The circumambulate, and then you chant the Itapiso. Yeah, it's a good one. Although there's a special chant for elephants, you know, what the Buddha said to the Naga, you can also do, but Itipiso is always great. Vicha Chadana Sampano, that means you know, endowed with knowledge and conduct. That's also one reason why it's also known as a Tathagata, you know, the thus gone or the thus come. So there's no contradiction between his teaching and his action. There's no contradiction between his speech and his thought. The ordinary humans, they may think one thing and tell you something different and act again different. But with the Buddha, it's all one thing. His teaching, the way he's thinking, the way he's speaking, and the way he's acting. This imperfect sync in perfect in harmony that is meant by Vichra Chadana Sampano. I think this is a really important one. And to me, you know, if uh, a spiritual teacher you know, is acting and doing really unwholesome things, I immediately lose interest in whatever they may be teaching. It's actually quite possible that you know, someone can be intellectually brilliant and the talk sounds fantastic, even if they are doing really bad things. It's not impossible. But I think a good criterion for a spiritual teacher is that you see that their actions are roughly in line. I mean, not every spiritual teacher is necessarily fully enlightened and perfect, so they may still have weaknesses and sometimes say things not so skillfully and so on, but at least one can notice that there is a good basis in virtue.
But in the Buddha, there's obviously perfection in both the knowledge and in his conduct, in his perfect conduct. Sugato, literally it means gone, but it's also the meaning of welcome. The most welcome being, you can't be more happy about anyone appearing in this world than the Samasambuddha. Loka Vidu, the knower of the universe, both uh, in the more external sense, you know, the different realms of existence, you know, down from the hell, animals, hungry ghosts, humans, the different levels of central heavens, the different levels of Brahmaloka, the pure abodes of the Anagamis. And also in the um, psychic powers, and he could go to the moon, to the sun, to other solar systems, and that would all be possible. But in a more profound sense, you know, the world is you know, the six sense spheres. And the Buddha would know that and would know where it comes from, how it arises, what is the condition for the universe to arise, and what is the condition for the universe to cease. The cessation of the universe, the experience of Nibbana. Anottaro Purasadama Sarati, the supreme trainer of those willing or amiable to a training. This is Dhamma, Purasadama Sarati. It's not the Dhamma, D H A M A. But uh, was used in India, for example, for an animal which is not yet trained. And once they have finished their training, then they are done to fully trained. So that uh, indicates you know, the unique ability of the Buddha you know, to train humans, to train monks, nuns, to train male and female upasakas and upasikas that they can uh, attain nibbana. This is where Buddha is noticeably different, even to the most outstanding Arahants, that he can really establish a sasana, that he can get other beings to realize the same thing. Sattaha Deva Manusanam, the teacher of gods and humans, expressing that he is actually not teaching only humans. In sheer numbers, the Buddha probably had taught many more devas. When he did the first sutta here, what you see in the pedestal, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma on Asala Puja, full moon day, and it starts the Vasa, was only five humans, and only one of them attained the first stage stream entry. But they say there were countless thousands of devas. And then the um, rejoicing would reverberate through all the different levels of, of the heavens. So in, in pure quantity, the Buddha would have been teaching uh, more devas and spirits and humans. Satadeva Manusana Buddha, 
the Buddha one is uh, the awakened one, someone who has woken up from the sleep of delusion, woken up from the illusionary dreams of myself and permanence. And Bhagavan once more. So really, you can't really translate it very well. The, uh, the exalted one, the blessed one, the fortunate one. Of course, if you know the meaning, then the chant is more powerful. It's also in our chanting book. You can just look. Do you have one of our chanting books? I mean, personally, we can give you one if you come up, pass you one. It's good to know it uh, in uh, English as well. We will make the practice of doing that mantra much more powerful. It reverberates deeper in your mind. In general, and if you do Buddha, Buddha, or the whole thing, it be so Bhagavan. You know, the stronger your faith, the stronger your knowledge about the Buddha and what really makes him so special, and the more devotion and so on, the more powerful the mantra usually is. The power is not so much just in the words. Now, the power is more like you know, what, what your mind associates and understands about these words. So if you go on pilgrimage, if you study the life of the Buddha, if you do your regular Buddha puja, expressing your faith and devotion, this is all building up the resonance body. I like that really about our little... It's not that big, but it has a very sonorous resonant sound. But when I visited a Nalanda Buddhist society in KL, they have one of these gongs and it's like that big. And of course, the sound, this one can't compare. And if you're so really so similar, and you can say your mind is like the gong. And each time when you strike the gong, it's like when you repeat the mantra. But if you have more knowledge about the Buddha and more faith, then uh, each time repeating the mantra is like having a bigger, bigger gong and will reverberate stronger in your mind. There's also the probably most common meditation object the Buddha would teach to the laity. Repeating Buddha was a uh, very known Padikama for so many disciples of Lungpa Man. The Lungta Mahabua famously established his Samadhi first with that one. And only afterwards he did the Dukkha Vedana pain meditation. And it's a meditation object which makes you feel very happy quickly. A pain meditation doesn't start by making you feel happy naturally. But repeating it to be so with some understanding, you feel uplifted. Also makes you very confident. It also gives us a sense of wholesome self-esteem. There's so many people who have problems nowadays with negativity to themselves, to the extent even self-harming, guilt, guilt trips, whether by guilt and remorse and uh, inferiority complex and you know, all these kind of things. You know, the moment when we 
have conviction in the Buddha, we have faith, confidence in the Buddha, and we understand uh, some of his qualities at least, that act in itself is enough to give us an uplift and feel more confident and more happy. The Buddha actually said no, it's, a, it's a source of happiness to have something to worship, to have something to look up to and respect. Some people think that the greatest thing may be if everyone worships and admires me, if I become super famous and they all admire me. But look at people who are having that. It often completely crushes them. There's so many of these young pop stars, movie stars, celebrities. It's very, very difficult to handle that. So what people like, you know, what they desperately try to do in getting their likes on their Insta and followers on Twitter and YouTube and whatnot, and it's actually often rather harmful. You don't really get anything from that. What is really beneficial for our own mind is to have something that is worthy of respect and then to ex express that respect. That is what really gets your mind in a wholesome state and gives you a wholesome self-esteem. In quite a while, if there's any questions, I can also check here the live stream. Okay, so I'm getting the question that T was it not was you about the purple flowers? No? Anyway, someone bought uh, purple flowers. And then everyone said, oh, they are so beautiful. And now you're asking why. <laughs> I guess because they're beautiful. What, what do you want me to explain? To go into the philosophy of beauty. Uh, is an unresolved in Western philosophy is one of the big questions and is unresolved. It's one of the big questions of Western philosophy. What, what, is, what is beautiful? What is beauty? What, what can I know? What is the world or the universe? What is beauty? And those are the classic questions of Western philosophy. And they've been working on that since Plato for about two and a half thousand years. And I think they haven't found a full answer yet. It's quite intriguing why certain things are beautiful and why that has such a strong impact on our mind. I think this is such a profound and deep teaching. I think I had to go for another Dhamma talk. <laughs> I think I can't go into that. This is a very, very famous, but a very difficult and profound teaching. But no, the teaching to buy here. But uh, there's also beauty in Dhamma. And that is the best beauty you can discover. And, and um, an appreciation of beauty is what can lead you into samadhi. Rather than trying to explain why is something beautiful or what exactly is that, in terms of using it, 
if you're an aesthete, if you have a strong sense of what is beautiful or aesthetic, then I would recommend you to delight in Dhamma because there's great beauty in the teaching of the Buddha or to find beauty in the meditation object. Now the breath can be very beautiful when it becomes calm and soothing and uh, contemplating the qualities of the Buddha and that can be very beautiful. The Buddha himself was very beautiful. He was uh, having the 32 characteristics of a unique human being that will become only either a returning emperor or a Buddha. So he would have a great physical beauty as well. But more important is the beauty of his Dhamma and the beauty of the meditation object. I mean, Schopenhauer, who I liked very much, he has got a, a quite elaborate theory about beauty. And he says, uh, when you are in the state of an aesthetic contemplation, that uh, the kind of defilements, the particular craving is a little bit uh, in abeyance. If you listen to some extremely beautiful music or you see a very beautiful Buddha statue and you're really struck or struck by the beauty or beautiful sunset in nature, natural beauty is something the Buddha enjoyed. And even an ascetic monk like Venerable Mahakasapa, he has got these beautiful verses, Pali verses describing the beauty of nature where he lived. And that can be uh, very helpful uh, for deepening your samadhi. The Shobhmaha said that your defilements, in particular in the craving, uh, is kind of uh, inactive when you are aesthetically uh, contemplating, when you're enjoying uh, something very beautiful. And it's quite true. Now, if you watch a beautiful sunset in nature, just yesterday there was someone from Northern New South Wales and we talked about um, that Nimbin Falls, the Nimbian Falls. Forgot the name now. So, so breathtakingly beautiful falls not so far from Byron Bay. We went there a couple of months ago. Minion Falls, I think. Minion Falls. And uh, it's just absolutely beautiful. And when you watch that in nature, a beautiful waterfall, a beautiful sunset, you don't usually feel angry. You don't usually feel jealous. You don't usually feel depressed. You're not overcome by doubt. So I think uh, contemplation of beauty can have a little bit an, an aspect of samadhi. And on the other hand, if you find your meditation object ugly and unattractive, you will find it very hard to attain samadhi with that one. So it's good to develop a sense of beauty in your meditation object. Yeah, that is the traditional uh, uh, puja that you contemplate, uh, that the um, beauty of the flowers uh, fades away. Of course, the uh, flowers is very central, it's a very central beauty. There's actually in the Devata Sangyata, there's an event where a monk living in the forest and then he is 
smelling the beautiful fragrance of some flowers. And, and then the deva accuses him of theft because he steals you know, this experience. Of course, it's not really theft in terms of precepts, but the deva wanted to admonish the monk and not to get lost in sensuality. This is why you can't wear flower garlands today. You're on eight precepts. The mala, mala gandavilipana, the wearing of flower garlands you can't do on eight precepts because it's very central. So this puja is meant that uh, people don't get lost in the sensuality of having beautiful flowers. So samadhi is in the contemplation of beauty which is in a non-central way. Often people, when they think of beauty, they may think of that in a more central, central sense, a very attractive person of the opposite sex. But that is obviously not the kind of beauty that the Buddha would be encouraging to contemplate. But having a nature, a beautiful nature, even the great monks and the Buddha himself could appreciate that and would feel happy and uplifted. And if your heart is happy and uplifted, is already reducing the five hindrances. And the great beauty is the, the light which you can see, the obasa in samadhi or when the mind settles down in samatha meditation is incredibly beautiful. The people who have got upachava samadhi, not even jhana yet, even just upachava, you may see light which is much brighter than the sun it's not hurting your eyes because you're not seeing it with the eyes. Can you imagine that, seeing a light which is brighter than looking directly into the sun? But it doesn't hurt and it's just so beautiful and you feel just intrigued by the beauty of that light. Now there's a kind of experiences you can develop in uh, samatha meditation, the samadhi meditation. And that is a very uh, wholesome beauty. When you see that beautiful light sometimes also called the nimitta in your meditation uh, means that you usually don't feel any of the hindrances much. <laughs>